0: Welcome to The Practice Podcast, a show created by lawyers to help lawyers in life and business without all the complicated lawyer language. Let's welcome Bast Amron founders and your hosts, Jeff Bast and Brett Amron. Hi, Brett. Hi, Jeff. How are you? Well, you? Fantastic. Thank you. Fantastic. Yeah, I'm excited. We have a great great guest today. Our the guest International is, variety. Yes, Exactly. I would like to introduce you to Krishna Venkat, who is the founder of Anoma Legal, a law firm with three offices in India. Krishna is a a corporate M&A lawyer with over 17 years of experience handling cross-border mergers and acquisitions for leading Indian conglomerates and foreign multinational corporations. He is, as I mentioned, the co-founding partner of Anoma, and they have offices in Mumbai, Delhi, and Bangalore. And in just five years... The firm has grown from seven partners and 19 lawyers to 13 partners and 65 lawyers. So they've tripled in, in just five years. Krishna has extensive experience advising boards and management with clients in a diverse array of sectors including tobacco, pharmaceuticals, hospitality and he advises these companies on a range of legal and regulatory issues. He also handles fraud investigations dealing with the investigators and devising strategies for the disclosure and resolution of findings and he's also a runner and he just completed a half marathon in, in the Mumbai marathon. Welcome, Krishna. Welcome.
1: Thank you very much, gentlemen. It's uh, lovely to be here and uh, to be speaking to you guys on on this day.
0: We are happy to have you. So let's jump into your firm, Anoma. You started it in, I think, 2018 with about 25 professionals or or 19, 19 lawyers in total, right?
1: That's correct, yes. We started with 19 lawyers and we just had a vision to create a firm that we believe would grow with a certain trajectory and with a certain set of values that you know the, the founding partners, including myself, uh, all of us felt you know would take the firm in the right direction. We were interested in creating, I think, a platform where you know, we could encourage good talent, at the same time grow in a systematic and steady way, and to try and bring, you know, more professionalism and you know create a, a, a platform for more younger lawyers to come up and, and grow as much as we could. One of the things that we were very particular about is creating a work culture that is very collegiate and where we have a lot of camaraderie within uh, within our teams, where as far as possible, we keep the formalities, which is actually quite unusual in the Indian context. We try and keep the formalities within the firm as simple as possible. So unlike a lot of law firms in India, I have a practice with my team where They do not address me as sir or Mr. Venkat. They address me by my first name or by my initials. So what we try to do as much as possible is create, you know, borrow a lot of what I understand are very American practices Mm. of creating, you know, reference by first name and, you know, build a more collegiate system where people feel encouraged and find the opportunity to grow the way they like and also build a a lot of industry-specific expertise in certain areas like uh, for me, it's pharmaceuticals, uh, tobacco, as well as regulated money transfer businesses, which we work with extensively. And you know, the idea was to create that expertise on a sustained basis and then grow the firm like that, which we believe is, is the way forward uh, in the Indian market.
2: Krishna, tell us how you and your partners, obviously you were a seasoned lawyer by the time you started your firm. Where did you start out and what did you see or experience or your partner experience that led you to where you are today. I mean Jeff and I have the same we have a story that we've told on the podcast about why we left our you know other firms and why we we started our own. Tell us sort of what you saw and what you experienced and why you started your own your own firm.
1: Sure. So I think one of the things that happened so I'll I'll just break into a little bit of history of the Indian legal market in if you if you could just bear with me and and I mean feel free to start waving your hands and say look Krishna please stop <laughs> we're getting bored and I'll I'll just take that as uh, as cue in the right direction but I think what happened in India is that uh, see the Indian legal market along with the Indian economy. It was all a closed economy until the late 1990s, until the early 1990s to be exact, when the Indian market started liberalizing and opening up to foreign companies coming in and investing into India. And the legal market up until that time was also a very old-fashioned market where it wasn't really exposed to international practices. So a lot of firms you know, that survived through that time were very, very antiquated in the ways they they conducted themselves. So... There's been a lot of churn since the 1990s in the Indian law firm market, where people have been trying to modernize law firms as much as possible, but at the same time try and hold on to certain things that people value deeply in the quote unquote old ways, which is you know strong client relationships, you know personal interpersonal relationships that have been cultivated over years, and also you know you know the old fashioned ways of 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 creating a firm. So what we saw is that at least what I've seen in the last. 10, 15 years, is that there's a very concerted effort to try and modernize Indian law firms and try and bring them in line with what firms in the United States and the United Kingdom are doing. And of course, countries like Singapore, because these two us are at least similar jurisdictions at a certain degree. What I've seen personally is a considerable amount of movement towards modernization, which comes in the form of you know, creating new compensation structures within uh, law firms creating practice areas that are more industry-based and industry focused, creating a lot more in-depth expertise in certain areas and trying to you know, avoid you know, creating a pool of generalists and try and create more specializations within practices. Like the, I mean, to a lot of Indian lawyers, when we look at law for, you know, websites of American law firms, we, we're always amazed at to see the, you know, the very, very granular specifics that specializations that exist in the US legal market. And that is something that has become quite desirable for a lot of uh, you know players in the Indian market who are you know trying to emulate that. You know, American firms, British firms have been at the forefront of it, and I, at least to us, it seems that the world is trying to catch up. Mm. So that is recurring theme that keeps coming up every now and then in observations that we've had. And of course, with that, uh, I mean, with that change, with that churn, there's also. You know a lot of you know challenges in aligning expectations where you know, you know some firms really want to modernize and try and take themselves to the next level but you know sometimes the you know the revenues don't exactly tally with those growth expectations or the you know the growth or, or the way the firm is you know firms are evolving or the market is evolving doesn't exactly correspond to the way people would like the careers to grow it's become a lot more competitive it's become a lot more aggressive it's become a lot more i mean the the sheer number of law firms that we're working with and that we're competing with is a lot more than what it was 15, 20 years back. When I started my career, I started with a firm called Crawford Bailey & Company, which is one of India's oldest law firms. It was founded in 1828 and it still is in existence and it's, it still has some of the oldest players in the industry uh, working there. And, you know, so for them, I mean, they were, they were one of the best firms in India at one point. But... Obviously, you know modernization took was was quite a challenge for them as well as it was for many other firms. So there's been a lot of you know you know coming to terms with you know how the world is has, has changed. So as Aldous Huxley's uh, you know famous book goes, a brave new world. Where exactly do you fit in that? And that's something that a lot of these guys are trying to navigate.
0: Right.
1: I didn't see any hands waving, so no, I'm no, no that's no, that great. It's that great.
0: great. It's interesting. So how <laughs> many how many founders were you? I know there were seven partners at the start. Were 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 all of you founders?
1: Yes, uh, uh, all seven of us were founders.
0: And and, and did you seven work together in the, in a prior firm, or how did you come together to form this this uh, you know the new firm?
1: So we were all partners together in a, in a previous firm called K log and and Company. We'd all we had been there for a couple of years, and you know a couple of the partners that I'm that I co-founded Anoma Legal with. A couple of them I've known for almost 10 years. In fact, they were my colleagues in Crawford Bailey & Company from over 10 years back. So there was a bit of familiarity in all of us working with each other. And I think for me personally, and I think my, my founders would also agree with me on this, is that I think that professional equation and that professional comfort that we had with one another is what we believe was the cornerstone for you know sustaining this relationship. And it still is sustaining on that basis. Because we just have a lot of faith and trust in one another, that was, of course, quite core. Sorry. And, to,
0: <laughs> and so, I'm very, I'm very curious, and sorry for uh, you know the, the the digging on this, but so seven of you leave this firm at the same time, but and you took associates with you, other attorneys with you, or because I know you started with 19 lawyers.
1: What we had done was we had given the management of our previous firm along with us. We gave you know a pool of associates a choice on whether you'd like to continue with the previous firm or come and join us in Anoma Legal. And you know, a couple of them chose to stay, and a couple of them chose to come out with us. Mm. Respected decisions either way, and it was all you know. Formally, we shook our hands on it, and we bowed our heads and we said thank you very much. Hope we remain in touch, and we moved on.
2: So, so in terms of the human resource, right? You know, meaning your people. Do you get them higher from within the country? Are you finding more perhaps expats coming back to India if they study abroad? What are you seeing? So
1: Indian regulations require that if you have to practice law in India, you have to be a citizen of India and you also have to be registered with the bar and the citizenship requirement is an absolute one. So typically the only, the only way you could practice in India is that if is, is if you held citizenship. So inevitably the recruiting pool remains confined to anyone who, holds an Indian passport. There is, of course, reform coming up in that front, but we can get to that separately. As far as, you know, where we recruit from and how we go about doing it, we try, at least the our preference, is to try and recruit associates straight out of college to the extent that we can. I mean, that has always been our priority because we believe that, you know, we can train people to work in the culture and with the expectations that we drive. We also do certain select lateral hires from time to time. People who we believe will, you know, you know, help augment what we're trying to build. And we've been quite successful in that front in finding people that, you know, uh, share our vision and share our values on the way we'd like to grow.
0: Great. So there were seven of you. You you devised this hatches plan to form your new firm. Did you open a single office at that time and then expand to other locations over time, or did you spread out immediately and say, okay, you'll take this region, I'll take that region? How did that work?
1: So we spread out immediately because, in fact, two of the seven partners were already based in separate cities. So out of the seven of us, five of us were based, uh, are based in Mumbai. One of us is based in Bangalore, and another one was based in Delhi. So we kind of already had the the, the geographical cover that we wanted. That happened quite seamlessly. We also had pools of associates in each of these cities as well to at least get, you know, to start executing the work that was coming in right right through the door. So from that perspective, the you know, it was a fairly seamless start in terms of, you know, having offices in in these three locations and having a team, you know, quote-unquote, having boots on the ground Mm -hmm. to uh, get work uh, running.
0: Fantastic. And I'm curious, because in the U.S., the decision whether for clients, whether to stay with the existing firm or go to the next firm is, is a client decision. And at least in Florida, there's a, a special procedure by which the, the old firm and the new firm will send typically a joint letter to the client saying, do you want to stay with you know, firm A or move to firm B? And it, ultimately, it's the client's decision, not uh, you know the lawyers don't just get to say, okay, I'm taking my client's. What was that process like for you in in India?
1: Fundamentally, the process is very much the same, that it's entirely the discretion of the client on whom they'd like to work with and where their comforts lie. So, I mean, that's exactly... I mean, obviously, it's not a very institutionalized process as it is in in Florida. I understand that even Massachusetts has a very similar process of there being a joint letter being issued to all clients. If I understood the process that you outlined correctly... But fundamentally, in India, it again boils down to where the the clients' uh, preferences uh, lie. So, from that perspective, it's it driven. It was driven entirely by what were the clients that we started with, or whom they were willing to work with, and they happened to pick us.
2: So, in terms of the legal landscape or the the legal profession in India and the type of work, how would you rank that in terms of what you see? What you see the most in the country is it transactional litigation immigration, what kind of work dominates?
1: So if you look at the market as a whole, it's always, it's litigation that's the most dominant uh, practice because litigation has a presence in literally every corner of India and in every district court, every magistrate court, every city civil and sessions court, as well as the high courts in, in each state of India. We have about 20, 27 states, 28 states now in, in all of India. So it's litigation is the overwhelming uh, uh leader in terms of you know in terms of the volume of work that is generated in terms of the the number of lawyers that are employed corporate m a is actually rising corporate m a was quite a very niche practice in in the 90s because there were not that many transactions and acquisitions happening because that's again a function of, of the trajectory of the economy and how it's growing because the indian economy has been growing quite aggressively in the last 25 years corporate m a has consequently picked up but it's still nowhere near the you know the level of the number of lawyers that are engaged in litigation. That's still you know by far the most. Family law is a fairly prominent one, and so is real estate. So those are the uh, other ones that I would say are still ahead of uh, corporate when it comes to the sheer number of lawyers that are employed or engaged
2: in those practices. And is it's based on the British system, or what? What's the system based on in in India, or the laws, I should say? So-
1: so we're derived uh, principally from the old British way of, or, or, of lawmaking. So a lot of, com- a lot of our commercial laws borrow heavily from the United Kingdom. They borrow heavily from Australia and Singapore. I think certain elements of what we have tried to do in the past have also come from the United States. For example, the FCPA that you have in the US is something that we have used elements of it in framing what is our law on corruption, which is the Prevention of Corruption Act. From time to time, we've also tried looking at U.S. jurisprudence on you know, the Microsoft antitrust case. That is something that we've studied uh, very closely in India, you know especially in trying to understand monopolistic practices uh, from an antitrust perspective. So there are elements that we have borrowed from several places in the commercial law front. When it comes to personal law, India is very unique in that every religious group in India has their own personal laws that apply to it. Hindus are subject to the Hindu Succession Act, There are succession laws that apply for Muslims, and there are succession laws that apply for people who who are Christian or who profess a different religion as well. So it depends on the religion that you profess, and accordingly, a personal law applies. So does marriage law and divorce law uh, as well. When it comes to real estate, this is where it also becomes interesting, where we have certain elements of, of our law that are very British in nature. For example, freehold land. Leasehold land, which is a very British concept, and I believe it's there in the United States as well. But we also have a lot of Indian, very specific Indian requirements on, on how land is counted or how land is aggregated, and as well as certain restrictions on the usage of land, which I would say are fairly unique to India, where we have certain categories of land that are reserved for certain communities of people who are you know very closely attached to the land or who, who have certain tribal rights or, over land. I don't know if this would be a correct comparison to make, but similar to how in the United States for Native Americans, you have certain laws that apply on how, uh, how local zoning works across territories. I believe it, we have something quite similar in India, if that would be an appropriate comparison.
0: Yeah, I believe so. That's yeah, <laughs> super, super <laughs> I interesting. So. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, and you know, that is fascinating. I have two questions. One is, does your firm cover all these areas? Are you a full-service law firm? or? So we're a
1: full-service law firm the, uh, in, in the sense that we cover M&A litigation, private equity, real estate, banking, finance, uh, projects, and infrastructure. That's, I mean, that's our bread and butter of what we cover. There are a couple of practices that we do not cover. We don't cover tax law because typically in in India, tax is done by accounting firms. I mean, the tax regulations in India are famously complicated. I mean, they have been historically very complicated in the past, although they have simplified considerably in the last seven, eight years. But it's still considered a practice that it's that devolves more on accounting firms to take the lead on. And we also don't cover family law and personal laws because that, again, requires very, very focused commitment to that, which we are not in a position to offer. But everything outside of that, we typically, I mean, we should be, we, we should easily cover.
0: I was curious, actually, on the topic of family law. The, that was the other question I was going to ask, because you mentioned that family law, and I think you said maybe another practice is governed, in at least in part, by religious practice. So, if for lawyers who practice in that area, do they practice in within only within their religion, or do you is there a is it cross lines there? Do they cross lines? So.
2: You
1: can cross lines. There's no challenge in crossing the lines. And I think you do have a lot of instances where people cross lines because the laws are not difficult to understand in the sense that because, see, if you take family law as a start, the thing that can potentially, that, that does certainly vary is how does division of assets work in case a person were to pass, pass away? How exactly do you distribute assets between, say, if it's, if it's a man, then if uh, his, what does his spouse claim? What do his children claim? And who else is entitled to claim? So that process obviously just varies from community to community. Then in case of a divorce, then how do you uh, how does the divorce get affected? So there are I mean there are nuances to that depending on the community, but you can practice in another community's personal law as well. And you do have examples of people who
0: have done it quite successfully. Really, really, really uh-huh. interesting.
2: I would imagine that you have a mix of clients, both based in India, and perhaps coming from outside the country doing business in India. Have you seen that mix change in one direction or the other, or has it stayed pretty constant over the years?
1: So... It's actually interesting that you put that question because I would say that in the late 90s and early, I mean, actually, I'd say early 2000s, because that's when I started practice. So it'd be a little more appropriate for me to talk about that time. But from the early 2000s, the overwhelming majority of work was work that came from outside into India. So a lot of corporations in North America, in Europe on the Far East were looking to invest in India very aggressively. So the volume of work that was coming from overseas was you know, of a much higher order than the work that was being generated within India itself. Because the interest, especially in, in corporate M&A, was just astonishing. I mean, We've had days when we'd be coordinating with Tokyo in the mo- early in the morning and you know speaking to San Francisco late at night and you know, those days were never ending. It was literally like being in a call center so. but uh, it was it, was, it was, those those days were quite uh, quite fun. What has happened in the last ten years is that a lot of Indian companies have become a lot more aggressive in their international expansion so you've you've seen a lot of work from India going up- abroad as well. One interesting trend, in fact, I, I think it's quite be quite appropriate to share it with you guys, is that a lot of Indian tech companies are now basically migrating to Delaware and setting themselves up as Delaware C corps, and then going into funding rounds in the United States for their Series A and Series B, and you know the ability for in the you know private equity and venture capital investors to invest in the U.S. Purely from the, you know, the, the size of the of the investment round and you know the amount that they can deploy and the speed at which they can deploy, is unparalleled anywhere else in the world. So, in that sense, the U.S. has become a very interesting market for us in trying to understand how regulations work. So, yeah, just thought that would be an interesting something.
2: I would imagine, right? Given what's happening in India, what has happened over the last decade or more that there's going, we're seeing more of that transition. I know we're seeing that at least in terms of what we're hearing right in the news and and what we're seeing in this country as well. And I would imagine that there's been that that transition as well. Interesting.
0: Yeah. Tell me, uh, what's your secret sauce? How did you go from 19 to 65 in in just five years? Did you acquire other firms or had, was that all organic growth? How'd, how'd you do it?
1: It was completely organic growth. We uh, just made it a point not to... The thing that we were very particular about and is that we just told ourselves that we're not going to go out there and market ourselves aggressively. We just wanted to focus and make sure that the clients that walked out with us uh, would continue with us. Because... The Indian market is becoming i mean it's it's a tough market because we are when I mean, the competition is just growing more aggressively day by day, so our priority was just to make sure that look, whoever walked out with us stays with us and they remain a client for the next forty eight months come what may, and then from there just keep building it on. The other thing that we are working on very aggressively is trying to manage certain process intern, processes internally to minimize. Burnout rates among associates. That is something that I'm personally very passionate about because I believe that the more we are able, at least in India, the more we are able to manage burnout among associates and preserve continuity, clients feel that much more reassured when they deal with us. See that, hey, it's the same team I worked with just six, eight months back. And, you know, it's the same set of associates and they're showing the same level of enthusiasm. So that is something that I've you know, my team, you know, my partners and I, we've been quite committed towards, and that I thought appears to be one element of the secret sauce that that pans out.
2: And so, can you give us a little insight into some of the things, some of the practices you have at your firm to help with, you know, preventing burnout?
1: So, the first thing that we have done within my team is I have something called a block time system, where in a certain week, like I take a stock of the num- of, of the volume of deliverables that we have, like if we have. Eight or nine share shareholder agreements that need to go out or share subscription agreements in the US, what would be an investor rights agreement or a stock purchase agreement, the equivalent of those documents. And you know, depending on that volume, what I try and say is that look, on Mondays, Wednesday, on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, between two o'clock to four o'clock, I'm going to avoid all client calls. And I'm going to get the associates to just settle all documents, or you know, finalize all documents and clear all doubts through live page turns between two o'clock and four o'clock. So I tell clients openly that, look, these days, please just let me sit with my associates and, and map this out. Because what I've seen, especially with younger associates, is that one of the reasons that, I, and I've personally experienced this, is that when you tell them, look, I need this document, this the set of documents by tomorrow morning, you know, the first few hours are just panicked for them because they just don't know what what is that first step, what's the you know, step one, step two, step three, step four. So if you try and break it down and do it during daylight hours, and then they feel like they've made some progress between, say, nine o'clock in the morning to five thirty-six in the evening, then you know, whatever's left to do over the next few hours, you're you're just that much more efficient when you do it. So if the real Challenging elements of of the job, you try and get that out of the way first. That, I think, helps. A very strange explanation I'm going to give, and just bear with me, there's a book by this very famous uh, CEO, Andy Grove, who was the CEO of Intel in the 1990s, uh, High Output Management. And what he said is that if a CEO were to review a report, he should review the rough draft. He should never review the final report. Review the very first draft that came from the analyst right at the bottom. Look at that and start pointing out what you need fixed and what you need addressed. And that kind of has stuck with me, where I make it a point to try and. If the more I front end that first draft with with my associates, then you know the further iterations are simplifying. If I don't know if that's making any sense, but uh,
2: oh, hundred percent. I mean, we do a lot of that as well. We have you know, depending on the client matter, we have team meetings we run through with with any of the lawyers and staff that are working on the cases and run through the tasks that need to get done the timelines so that we plan it all out and it's not listen emergencies happen as you know and you know that requires all hands but we try to prevent that as much as we can with the planning process it sounds very similar to what what you're talking about
0: krishna this is this is did, did you want, want to, you to add something out yeah, please i didn't mean to cut <laughs> you, <laughs> you mean, off sorry sorry <laughs> Did you have any parting thoughts? Because I, I think um, this has been fascinating. We probably could do a whole nother session with you. But any uh, anything last comments you want to make before we sign off? I
1: think that's about it. I, I, mean, I mean, a lot of the things that we're trying are still a work in progress at a certain level. So, I mean, uh, i would be more than happy to share it once I can show you tangible results on what we've done. But like if I had to, I mean, someone asked me the secret sauce, it's just basically keep your head down and you know, try and you know get people to talk about you before you even go and talk about yourself. Yeah. If that if that helps, uh, and you know, just get
0: keep your associates happy. Agreed. It uh, looks like we may be we may have some uh, data issues, uh, technical issues again. But keeping the associates happy, and it sounds like he's playing Krishna and his firm is he he's is taking the long view. Like at, it, it seems like you're planning for. Long-term growth rather than, even though you're expanding rapidly, you're really planning long-term. So congratulations to you on the success.
2: And maybe one of these days I'll get out there and uh, run the half marathon in Mumbai with you. So I'd like to do that. It would be so interesting. I would love to do
0: that. I think if Brett comes out, you guys are running the full marathon. Or maybe (laughs) twice. Maybe (laughs) do two laps. Christian, this is really... A lot of fun. If you have any questions for Krishna or his firm, their information is in the show notes. And if you like this episode, please give us a five-star review, share the show, forward it to your friends and family, and we will see you next time.
2: Thank you, Krishna. Appreciate Thank you, it. Krishna.
0: Thank you, Nelson.
1: Very welcome, guys. It's a pleasure speaking to both of you. Appreciate it. Bye-bye.
0: For more information on this show and other resources, visit FastAmron.com and connect with us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram at FastAmron.